Hi, this is Mili Radovic, and you're listening to The Beacon, the Oxford International Society's podcast. For our final episode of the Hillary term, we bring you an interview with Professor Simon Glendening. Professor Glendening teaches European philosophy at the European Institute of the London School of Economics. An Oxford graduate, Professor Glendening has focused a lot of his research on ancient philosophy and its place in Europe, specifically looking at what a European identity might be. He was giving a talk at St. Peter's College about Kant and Europe, so we sat down to talk about populism, Brexit, and what Kant's idea of the European Union might be. So, um, welcome, Professor Glendening. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so, you're here today in Oxford to give a, a, a talk on, on Kant and the European Union, uh, but to start off the podcast today, uh, we wanted to focus on the European identity first. And given your specialty in, in European philosophy and, and researching on the philosophy of a European identity, I'm uh, wondering if you think that we can speak of a European demos today. Uh, more specifically, do you see identity within Europe as based primarily on notions of national origin and experience, perhaps ethnicity, religion, or maybe political values that emerge from grand European philosophies as far as the Greek times? Kant, uh, like most writers before the 20th century, would be quite happy to speak about peoples, European peoples, and in fact, in the treaties of the European Union, they'll talk about ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. So there's no uh, anticipation of a European demos, of, of there being European people. On the other hand, uh, equally certain is that people will have been happy to identify a population as European, the Europeans, we the Europeans. And uh, it's interesting to think, I suppose, first of all, why there is this sort of disjunction between, on the one hand, uh, the absence of a European demos, of a European people, and uh, the presence of we the Europeans. That's quite striking. So one might begin by asking how one might begin to think of a constitution of we the Europeans. How can it come about that there are human beings with this sort of uh, uh, civilizational, cultural identity? Not so long ago, people would have talked about it as a kind of spiritual identity. What extent, given that the, the Europe, as we know today, is a post-war project, um, often when we speak in, in international relations, we would say it is a, therefore this sort of European experience is, is defined as this common um, common heritage of, of the world wars. Actually, in the talk that I'll be giving in Oxford today, I'll be looking at writings from the 1780s and 1790s in which the idea of a European Union first emerges, or at least explicitly emerges. Uh, it's very important to see that um, the project of European Union as a political project, genuinely a political project, uh, begins in philosophy and not in politics and certainly not in um, sort of the uh, international political situation of uh, 20th century wars and so on. The idea of uh, a European Union begins in the writings of European philosophers on what's generally called a cosmopolitan 
horizon of human history. The meaning of man was understood also as uh, uh, as our being a theomorphic creature that is made in the image of God. So man is the theomorphic creature with the capacity for grasping the meaning of things, which got translated in the Latin as uh, the animal rationale, the rational animal. And if you think of history as the history of man thus understood, you're looking at a movement of the unfolding in time of the reason in man. So man beginning as a primitive creature in some natural condition, moving in time in some sort of developmental history towards what was understood as the end of man. And the end of man would have been the realization of rational potential. So instead of being merely potentially rational, we become actually rational. And that's not just for Europeans, it's for man, for the universally. So they begin to develop what's called a universal history, not the history of this or that region, not the history of Europe or Africa or Asia or anywhere else, but of the history of man, uh, a universal history towards the end of man. And the end of man will belong, be, be a condition, a, a small s state for man in which uh, all of man's rational capacities can flourish to their maximum. And this was thought of genuinely as a cosmopolitan condition. It wasn't a condition limited to Europeans or Africa or, or in some other way as a, as a destiny for just one part of the world, but for the whole of humanity. A cosmopolitan end in which uh, conditions of uh, war and rivalry and violence have been surpassed in towards a future destiny of, of peace. A peace for all humanity. The people who wrote about European Union in the 1700s were cosmopolitan thinkers in this tradition. Now the, the cosmopolitan tradition itself comes down to us from Greek philosophy, the Stoics, who had an idea of the citizen of the world, but also from Christianity in the idea that we are all uh, son, uh, sons of God, we are brothers, there are no foreigners. Um, and cosmopolitanism really comes down to us through thinkers like Kant, who uh, thought that this was the universal destiny of humanity, but he thought it would happen first in Europe. Can you expand maybe on how then Kant's political thought is reflected perhaps in the organizational and value-related aspects of the EU? Absolutely. And how we link those and those two? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, Kant, Kant, Kant's thought runs through the European Union. If you go to uh, European Union websites, you'll find a long quotation from Kant at the very top, although they cut off the last sentence when he says that this isn't just a, a European project but will belong to humanity worldwide. Uh, they like just to hold on to the European part there, but um, Kant uh, has a conception of what um, civic life will be, as it were, as we move towards this end of history condition. And he understands it um, as uh, a relationship in which 
increasingly we live in conditions of mutual understanding and respect rather than mutual hostility and war. But he doesn't see this uh, in terms of the emergence of a borderless world and an international state. This is uh, the place in which Kant's thought is rather firmly inscribed in at least the current setup of the European Union, because Kant sees uh, the future for humanity as what one might call a still differentiated humanity into nations. He thinks that uh, certain distinctions among us, among human beings, uh, particularly linguistic and religious differences, um, are, he thought of them as fairly hardwired into uh, humanity. One doesn't have to go that far with him, but one can at least say that as far as the eye can see, linguistic differences and religious differences are not going to disappear. And uh, so he, he frames things in terms of the political unities that form around those differences, which are essentially nation states. And he thinks that a certain way of living with each other in a nation state um, is, as it were, the, would be the most advanced form of human society, what he called a civic state. So passing from uh, some savage condition into a, a, which is more or less lawless into a state um, in which you have um, constitutional government. And he, he described them as Republican states, which meant that they had a separation of powers and um, elected representatives. And so more or less what we call democracies. These democracies would be forming, he thought, in, in this, uh, first of all, in this European space, flowing out of the French Revolution, more or less. Uh, but these civic states, um, they weren't self-standing because they have neighbours. And so uh, just as you have something like a social contract within a state where you all uh, agree, as it were, to submit to coercive laws, so also in international relations, you would have ultimately to have some kind of great political body through which relations between states were mediated. Uh, so that um, our neighbours as states would no longer be a threat, uh, that they're, they're no longer there as a, an, an, an enemy, but rather in, a, in, a, in an expanding community of friends. And so he particularly anticipated what he called a, a great political body without precedent in the past in our continent. A political organisation that he called a federation, not a federal body, not like a federalist uh, state, or a federal state, but a federation of free states. Yeah. And um, for a long time, and uh, although there are always, at least since the Second World War, divergent views on this, some people taking a much more federalist line, um, Kant's idea of a federation of free states has been the model of the European Union. So looking at Kant's political thought, um, given his opposition to purely direct forms of democracy, what what would be Kant's take on the? How would you, from from Kant's perspective, look at the EU referendum? Well, um, one of the things that Kant was worried about was that when we think about the idea of a cosmopolitan end, that is where there is some kind of union of peoples, 
it's very easy, easy for us to think that the ideal form of that union would be an international state. So that ultimately, if what you want is peace between nations, or peace among people, then uh, the first or the final step would be to eliminate the nations because they're the cause, you know, they're the people, they're the forms, formations of peoples that, that uh, are at the root of wars. And so there's a, a very strong temptation, uh, both in uh, philosophy and in politics, to think that uh, overcoming nations, moving towards a post-national condition, would be the ideal, the ideal telos, the ideal golden end of the development of, in, in, of constitutional government, both in a nation-state and then internationally. But Kant thought this would be an absolute disaster. Uh, he thought that um, an international state would uh, decay into uh, what he called the graveyard of freedom. I, I think Kant thought, and I think he was probably right to think, that um, ideas of the formation of an international state in which, for example, the nation states become implementing authorities of a higher political body would lead to disaster. Yeah. And I think Brexit can be understood in that context through thinking that there was a, a significant worry on the part of the British population that we had, we were no longer, uh, or we were increasingly no longer uh, an independent state, but were in some way um, ruled by uh, some external power. Now this played into a distinctively British tradition of thinking about political liberty as non-domination, uh, which perhaps isn't the only conception of political liberty that belongs to the European heritage, but the whole idea of take-back control uh, was a very, very powerful one in Britain, and it was opposing itself to and, and a, the appearance, I mean I think a misleading appearance to be honest, but the appearance of uh, uh, a supranational power beyond the nation dictating how we are to organise ourselves as a state. Yeah. However, looking at say the Eurobarometer, which measures public opinion on, on the EU and on various matters, um, uh, comparing some of those figures, it is it's very often that, that citizens of a country have more trust in EU institutions than they actually do in their own political and national institutions. Yet it seems that they will still take the actual no notion of a nation-state for granted, and they will not take the notion of the European Union for granted necessarily. Yes, that's interesting. But then, of course, you've got to see what uh, what the European the European Union level does. I mean, it, it's it's um, like people often talk about it as primarily functioning through output legitimacy. That is to say that it's. Um, it legislates to prevent discrimination between bodies and uh, most of its outputs are quite clearly aimed at some, um, well, not a, not a, it's not a ruling policy for the, of social life for the, for the peoples of Europe. That remains something that goes on at the nation state level. So it may be, as it were, you can trust something to do stuff when what it does isn't very much. But also the positive benefits of union are not of the, generally speaking, of the concrete form that would come with saying, you know, they supply 
teachers to our schools or they clean your streets or, or anything like that. It's, it's not that kind of power. And one, what is the purpose of the European Union is, uh, is in some ways deeply philosophical. It's not a kind of everyday political institution. The real purpose of the Union, although this is a difficult thing to keep reminding oneself, is peace. And it, it's not inappropriate to say, first of all, that the, the greatest achievement of the European Union is to achieve peace in, in the region. And that is its purpose. It, 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 it has to, it can play, a, a, it has to play an important political role in the lives of Europeans in order to achieve that purpose. And part of that is about our doing things together where we, where we can work together. And, um, but it's ultimately about uh, uh, cultivating conditions of mutual understanding and respect. You know, the, the European Union isn't, in two respects, a, a space only of success. I mean, there are difficulties that have arisen through all sorts of projects that belong to the European Union. The Eurozone is not exactly a you know, a stable site of, of economy at the moment. Um, free movement has produced all sorts of difficulties for populations, uh, not, not least the ones where they leave. You know, people, people leaving states isn't, isn't a, a great thing for those states if, if it tends to be uh, educated, skilled brain workers, drain. brain drains on. Lots of problems associated with the European Union that are, are, are not the fault of states. And there's a second thing as well, which one is not entirely a straw man, is that that temptation towards the formation of an international state uh, belongs to the European Union still. There are many people, I mean, a, a lot, there are a lot of realists in Brussels who will say, no, this isn't the, the aim. You know, we're not trying to shift sovereignty from nation states up into a, a new sovereign power at the European level. But there are a lot of people who do and a lot of people in Brussels who do, and there are a lot of people who, are, as it were, theoreticians of the European Union who'd love that. Jürgen Habermas is one who yeah. is a powerful advocate for a much stronger European Union. And that temptation towards the international state, the very thing that Kant warned against, um, is real. And people, when they talk about a, a, an alien power, an overweening power, a, a little bit like uh, when people looked at the papacy and, the, you know, 500 years ago or 700 years ago as this overweening and rather corrupt power. Some people look at the U European Union and can see stuff like that there and it's not altogether wrong. You know, there, there, there are people who would love to see an international state and one of the things that Kant teaches is that anybody with power, anybody with power, aims to increase its power. There's no body which say, oh, no, I've got just enough, just the right amount of power now and I don't want any more. And he said that the union will survive as long as it doesn't have power like that of a state. And I think I agree with that. And a lot of people in Britain were anxious that the European Union was heading in a direction towards uh, wanting to be an international state. I actually personally think that that can't happen. Kant thought that the conditions under which it could happen are extremely rare. Uh, but generally speaking, it could only happen in the European Union if the nations willed it. 
right? They, 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 in the end, at the moment, they, the member state, it's, there are member states and its union, yeah. and the member states would have to cede sovereignty of that massive kind in order to transform it from a project which is essentially a federation of states and member states into a federal state. Uh, it's not clear to me that any country, however sort of pro-European or, or however much they may have benefited from uh, European Union or the Eurozone, uh, would actually make that step to, uh, uh, to become post-national, as it yeah. were. Kant thought it couldn't be willed by a nation. A nation, because they see their interest in federation, they can't at the same time see their interest in having no interest. But now, the, the, it's interesting you talk about the nation, it cannot be ruled by the nation. And then you talked about the people in Brussels. So trying to sort of separate, and I, I often try and ask those who perhaps understand Brussels better than I do, and I, it was interesting to read some of your blog entries um, uh, regarding the, I remember reading one just sort of very quickly after Brexit. Um, yes, because I was there. Yes, and it was a very <laughs> interesting tale in sort of your <laughs> philosophical musings after this. Um, but... Uh, when I ask people, sort of, well, I mean, people say Europe this and Europe that, and talking about Europe, uh, even asking a, a a person from Brussels, what does that mean? Um, would you say then that those you know, those ideologues in Brussels that they are almost separated from their nation states because often you know most of the Commission are people who come from a certain country or the commissioners are nominated by um, by Parliament. So the fact is that. Does that mean they, they, they themselves perhaps do assume a different identity? I wouldn't say ideologues. I would say idealists, in, political idealists in the strict sense, that they, they um, can uh, conceive and, and can see the possibility of uh, what, for all the world, looks like, a, as it were, a rational ideal. A lot of um, business in Europe gets... Uh, um, distorted by national interests and, and as it were if one looked from the perspective of a European interest uh, we might do things differently also if you look th from a perspective of as it were of a European interest uh, you probably wouldn't have nation states functioning as they do and so the the idea of moving towards an increasingly uh, federal model uh, is, isn't isn't a kind of um, an illusion created by people who've lost contact with their nations or anything like that. I'm sure uh, um, they will have quite strong attachments to their nations. I'm sure they do. But as it were, the what trumps that relationship will be a vision of a successful Europe. And... Uh, as good Europeans, that that's what they want to see. It, in the Kantian view, uh, this uh, vision of, of the of the the rational this rationally compelling future of an international state is a is a heading into disaster. But it's not obvious that it is. And of course, Kant might be wrong. Uh, you know, it may be that an international state would be ideal. But Kant, Kant's view is that it that. Um, that ver well, various reasons m mean that it would be experienced as an alien power. And as soon as something's experienced as an alien power, 
then uh, then you do have the space opened for various kinds of nationalisms and populisms or regionalisms of various kinds where people uh, the desire for self-government will uh, be missing from their political life and that would be a, a cause of um, rebellion against that international state problems within itself and also on the other hand, if it was to maintain itself, there would have to be a despotism from the international state. So Kant just thinks it will collapse if you if you you he thinks there are conditions under under which it could form an international state, but ultimately it couldn't be an enduring body. And he th although he thinks it has this kind of rational ideal character, ultimately one has to accept he thinks that the best that can't be bettered would be a federation of free states. Yeah, very interesting. And, this is, and to be honest, now I'm actually going to some of the more personal related questions to my, my own work and research. I wonder what you think, um, in terms of now, what, you know, what, what next for, for, for Europe? Um, would you uh, mentioned in this context uh, um, is uh, Churchill's call for the creation of what he called a kind of United States of yeah. Europe in 1946 in his Zurich speech and uh, that uh, is one where he too envisaged the European Union or whatever it was going to be called to be one kind of uh, inter interstate union among others and he he talked about America as already in a certain way obviously <laughs> is a United States of America you'd have this kind of United States of Europe. He also, at that time, I think, envisaged that, the UK, that Britain would not be part of the United States of Europe development because it had, he thought, this uh, Commonwealth yeah. already that it was centrally involved in. Yeah. That fell apart very quickly, actually, after 46. And um, later in his life, I think Churchill would have seen um, Britain's future much more strongly inside Europe and he certainly thought of Britain as a European country uh, but that, that, that thought of um, uh, multiple unions which ultimately Kant thought in fact Churchill too thought would end up in some kind of world federation uh, which would be an organisation for world peace Can we say that given the situation today given the rise of populism given Trump on the other hand, Putin in Russia, um, and sort of what some are calling it a new Cold War. Um, can you can you can you see the in the in the near future further motivations greasing the wheels of further integration on the on the new EU twenty seven. The 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 Cold War. One of the really interesting things about the Cold War is that it was global. Yeah. Everybody was caught up in it. But on the other hand, uh, Europe in a certain way was its center and a divided Europe uh, um, was its reality. Yeah. And um, I think uh, the um, future of the Cold War, as it were, will, have to, will, will be one in which Europe is no longer divided in that way, or at least mm. unlikely to be divided in that way. And I think the European Union plays an absolutely pivotal role now in the new Cold War or post-Cold War uh, situation in that um, 
the Cold War as it was after the Second World War was concerned that divided Europe. And now, increasingly, we're not looking at that situation. However, we are, of course, looking at a situation where countries all over Europe, including in Central Europe, are uh, less stable as liberal democracies than they have been for some time. And, and obviously that's a huge issue. What, it, uh, what I perhaps was hinting at earlier is that the movement towards a, a federal condition for Europe will exacerbate that rather than ameliorate it. And I think that um, a more modest union is the f is a of of a Kantian sort, as it were, of a federation of free states rather than a federal state, and certainly not falling back in towards a a, a, a a space of nation states in full independence, is is the is the future one can hope for is a more hopeful future. Now that's tricky for the reasons I've given. Is there are some people who really think that the the federal model is the way forward, but I think it would be a disaster, and I think it would only increase the the nationalist, xenophobic populisms we're seeing, rather than reduce it. And Europe needs to be a site of political stability in that respect. Thank you for listening. Please keep an eye out for our events next term, as well as more episodes of the Beacon. The Beacon team wishes you a lovely Easter break and looks we look and we look forward to bringing you more interesting conversa more interesting conversations on IR in Trinity Tech.